Jesus our Lord. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Those who know your name put their trust in you, O Lord, for you have not forsaken those who seek you. Let us pray. God of all glory, most holy in your majesty, we remember that on the first day you began your creation bringing light out of darkness, and on this first day you began your new creation raising Jesus Christ out of the darkness of death. With Jesus Christ, there is a new creation, a new life, a new covenant, a new humanity. And on this Lord's Day, raise us up to you. Grant that we, the people you create by water and the Spirit, may be joined with all your works in praising you for your great glory. Through Jesus Christ, in union with the Holy Spirit, we praise you now and forever. Amen. Our first hymn is number 115, All Creatures of Our God and King. It's number 12. 12. It's number 12. <laughs> <laughs>
Against you, you only have we sinned, O God, and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be blameless in your judgments. Let us confess our sin together. Almighty God, we confess that we have sinned against you and have done evil in your sight. We have transgressed your law and neglected your word. Forgive us our sins, O Lord, for the sake of Jesus Christ, who was put to death for our trespasses. Give us the grace and power we need to put away all hurtful things. Deliver us from the bondage of sin. Empower us by your Holy Spirit to walk from this day forward in your holy ways. We ask this through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Please stand for the assurance of pardon. You are justified by God's grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. I declare to you that all those who have faith in Jesus Christ and do repent of their sin are truly forgiven of all their sin. This is the good news of the gospel. Let us say together, praise be to God. Holy family of our Lord Jesus Christ, the apostle exhorts the church in his letter to the Ephesians, to lead a life worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Christian character is one way to to sort of lump these uh, different aspects of the Christian life together, Um, that in in the Christian, in the person we are, our character is to have these different qualities, and he mentioned several things, gentleness, patience, but humility, so I want to uh, focus particularly on humility. Christian character includes humility. Our Lord was humble, and the Holy Spirit creates humility in us. In the epistle, humility is literally lowliness of mind, and it's contrasted with being high-minded or haughty. As a God-given virtue, it acknowledges one's true weaknesses and one's gifts, the things we've been given, but also those things that we are weak in or that uh, we might even say are imperfections or defects that we have. We all have limits to what we can do and what we understand, so limits are part of what it means to be a human being. Some of those limits are because of who we are as individuals. Others are because of our sin. So sin definitely creates those sort of uh, failures and and problems in our life. A humble person recognizes those limits and acknowledges them. We're not to think of ourselves as greater than we are. Humility is accepting the reality about ourselves. As our Lord creates humility in us, we submit to him as the one who is greater than we are and upon whom we depend for all things. Consequently, we are set free from thinking so highly of ourselves as we grow in Christian humility, and we can praise God, and then we're free to serve others because we're not trying to put ourselves ahead of others or, or as better than others. So you were called in Christ to be humble. For this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ, and let us say, Amen. Now our hymn, I hope, is, is it 647? All right. How sweet the name of Jesus sounds.
Let us bring our petitions to our Heavenly Father. Almighty God, our Father, we are your people, the sheep of your hand, as Scripture says, called and protected and led by your Son, Jesus Christ. And he has taught us to pray, to bring our petitions and intercessions to you. He's opened the way for you to receive them and hear them. Stir up our hearts and minds by your Holy Spirit so that our prayers for others may be according to your will and your steadfast love. O Father, you have included in your church the lowly, the weak, the despised of the earth. And the great ones in this world laugh at your church because it is filled with the lowly. But you do not laugh. You show forth your salvation that is for the lowly. And so we are glad to count ourselves among those who are the least in this world. You have shown us great mercy that we may proclaim your salvation to everyone. Strengthen your people throughout this world that they may faithfully endure all trials and hardships by which your church participates in the suffering of Christ. And we particularly remember the Christians who were living and not to ignore the regular civilians living in these nations, but we do pray also for the Christians in China, Iraq, Egypt, Nigeria, Iran, North Korea, and the church that is in Israel and Lebanon and Palestine, 
and in our cities. We pray for our missionaries, Charles Jackson, James Fulker, Tina DeYoung, who are serving in Uganda. Please, O oh Lord, we pray that you would stop the war in Israel and the war in Ukraine. And may these who serve you, our missionaries and the other Christians, your church, not fear, but continue to grow in the faith and hope and love of Jesus Christ and to preach and proclaim the gospel. Here are our prayers for your church and these places where there is violence in this world. For those who are spiritually blind and do not see your great salvation in Jesus Christ, for those who do not hear the good news of what you have done, for those who are confused, deceived, and full of guilt, may they hear your word and turn to you with faith in Jesus Christ. Here are prayers for those who come to mind. In your wisdom, through Jesus Christ, you have created all things, and you redeem your creation. We pray that you would bring to an end all the evil powers of this world. Write what is wrong and come forth as the judge of your whole creation in righteousness and justice, putting away all selfishness and idolatry, greed, and violence. To this end, we pray for the careful administration of the government in this country, for our president, for our senators, our representatives, our city officials, the judges. We do pray for the end of abortion, for health care that treats people as people, for officials to know what is right and wrong and make laws that uphold what is morally right. We pray for the end of shootings in the cities. We also pray for the end of capitulation to the transgender confusion. And we pray for the freedom of the church to obey your word. Hear our prayers for our nation. Merciful God, just like Jesus healed the sick and received the outcasts, help us to care for those who are weak and cannot take care of themselves, for those who wander the streets and are hungry or, or are disabled, poor, or elderly. Hear our prayers for these. Our blessed Father, you've called us to be your church united in Jesus Christ. Keep us in faith, one in faith and service, celebrating the communion together and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ to the world. We pray for those in our church and among our friends who have difficulties in body and soul. For Leah and Frida, for Eduardo and Fawn and Jeff, for the Roberts family, for Tammy's family, and for our friends Becky and Jane, Karen, Phil, Tom, Bob, Angie, Dominique, and others we name to you in silence. May they be strengthened by your grace in their weakness and have confidence in your loving care. And we do humbly ask that you would heal them, give them peace, guide, and govern them by your Holy Spirit so that all their cares and struggles, they would be kept in your grace and mercy. May they remember that we are always walking in your sight and that Jesus Christ is our salvation and comfort in life and death. And now we do give you thanks for providing for all of our needs, both as individuals and as your church. 
Give to us again the things we need, including enough financial gifts to support the ministry of your word and the growth of Providence Church. Especially we pray that we would be able to witness to Jesus Christ more and more to those outside the church. And this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Let us present our gifts and offerings to the Lord. And now we will pray our prayer for illumination as we prepare to hear God's word read and preached. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray with the psalmist we echo his words. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Turn to me and be gracious to me as in your way 
as is your way with those who love your name. Keep steady my steps according to your promise, and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Father, uh, these are our prayers this morning. We pray that you would open our hearts to receive your life-giving word and that we would be strengthened and, um, and grateful uh, for your work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our Old Testament wor- uh, reading is in Nehemiah. In chapter 4, beginning in verse 15. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall, each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah, who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped to his side while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, The work is great and widely spread, and we are separated on the wall, far from one another. In the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet, rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So we labored at the wall, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night and may labor by day. So neither I, nor my brothers, nor my servants, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes. Each kept his weapon at his right hand. Our Psalter response is in the bulletin. Behold how good and pleasant it is, It is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Our epistle reading is from Philippians. beginning in chapter 127 and uh, continuing through verse 4 of the second chapter. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, 
but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And finally, our gospel reading from Mark, chapter 10. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word of the Lord. In our text in Philippians, Paul moves to a pastoral concern for the church. And it's a concern for unity. A few commentators believe that Paul brings up unity in this letter because the Philippian church was not united, so that it was a problem in the church, and therefore he brings it up. And they would point to the apostles' plea to the two women in the church, uh, Eudea and Syntyche, to agree in the Lord. It's in chapter 4, verse 2. Paul tells them to agree in the Lord. However, other scholars do not believe there was a crisis of disunity in the Philippian church. Their answer to this example of Eudia and Syntyche is that Paul would not just single out two people in the church if disunity was a problem in the whole church. If the whole church is having a problem with no unity, then why just single out two? And besides that, the disagreement between these two women seems mild, 
given Paul's gentle and short response to it. If you've read much in Paul's letters, you know that he can be quite fiery at times about problems in the church. And here he's just not with these two women. So for those two reasons, scholars, um, there, there are the scholars who believe there was not a problem in disunity, of disunity in the Philippian church, and I t- side with that. Paul's concern for unity is part of his regular instruction for the church. The language of unity runs through the text, and I just want to take you through that real quick. In verse 27, he talks about standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In verse 29, the apostle talks about suffering for Christ. The Christian suffering for Christ was in union or in Christ, um, union with Christ in his suffering. The church even has a unity with Paul, as he says in verse 30, engaged in the same conflict that he had. You hear these words? Same, one. Um, Those are words that express that unity. Then in chapter 2, Paul sets out the common life of the church. The church experiences the encouragement, loving comfort, participation in the Holy Spirit, affection and sympathy of being united to Christ, being in Christ. And because of this, common life, they are to have a harmonious disposition and be intent on the same purpose. They are to be united in their attitude towards each other. And he says humility is at the heart of the disposition they are to have. So I've just quickly walked you through the text to see that unity is running all the way through it, this this, uh, concern for unity. Now the apostle instructs the Philippian church, and I might add many of the other churches to whom he wrote, in their unity because of the seriousness of disunity. During Jesus' ministry, when his disciples were divided and arguing arguing about who should be the greatest, they were divided. Jesus stopped. He called them to himself. This was in our gospel reading. And then he reoriented their attitude, and he said, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. The Apostle Paul brings up the divisions and factions he had heard about in his letter to the Corinthian church. So there's another church where he talks about unity. And there, in the Corinthian church, there was a problem with disunity. So Paul brings it up in that letter. Disunity had worked its way into the very celebration of the Lord's Supper. The rich were not eating with the poor. They were not united in the meal. And Paul calls that out. Paul directs the Corinthians to examine themselves and discern the body, he says, which a very good uh, um, explanation of what he means there is the church. Discern the body of Christ. Discern the church. When they ate and drank, um, lest they come under God's judgment, they needed to discern that the body is one. It's not divided, the body of Christ. So the unity of the church is that important that if you don't observe the unity of, of the church, and if you divide and separate yourselves from each other, you come under God's judgment. The letter to Titus, Paul's letter to Titus, directs the minister to warn the people, the, the person who stirs up division in the church, and if he or she keeps doing it, to have nothing more to do with that person. The apostle says the person who causes the disunity is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Pretty strong language. Paul puts rivalries, dissensions, and divisions in the same list with sexual immorality, idolatry, and sorcery when he spells out the desires of the flesh in his letter to the Galatian churches. He talks about these things happening within the church, rivalries, dissensions, and divisions, and they they are forms of disunity. And then the apostle Paul adds this warning. 
I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Disunity has eternal consequences. So we think about our lists for what we think are severe sins, what the things that we think are just the gross, horrible, the worst sins, then probably disunity doesn't end up on our list. But in the Bible, it is. It's that serious. But it wasn't just a concern about something negative. Paul's concern isn't just about something negative wrecking the church. The apostle positively urges the church to live in unity. And that's what he's doing in the letter to the Philippians. So to some of the churches, he, he had to actually call out their disunity and then you know, uh, talk to them about what unity is in the church. But in the Philippians, he's not doing that. He's speaking more positively about the church living in unity. And he says in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 2, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, actually, he encourages all the churches, all the churches to whom he writes, to be united. And I took the time to check Paul's other letters, and in most of them he writes about being one, the same, united, joined together. He uses those kinds of expressions um, in the church. For example, in Romans, Paul says, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. And for the Corinthian church, he uses the metaphor of the human body for the unity of the church. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. The apostle in his letter to the Ephesians says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. The instruction to the church to be one is also in other letters in the New Testament. Jesus himself taught his disciples to be united. In the Gospel of John, he prayed that the church be one just as he and the Father were one. It's a prayer for the church, but it's also instructing the church to pursue that oneness. Unity, in other words, is essential to the church. Now listen to what Paul says about the unity of the church in our lesson this morning from Philippians. I'm going to work pretty closely with the text here. Unity is the responsibility of those with the heavenly citizenship. Now the ESV translates chapter 1 verse 27 this way. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And unfortunately, this masks the political meaning of the word that they render manner of life. The verb means to exercise the rights and duties of citizens or to take part in government. It can be weakened to mean behavior, but this letter that Paul, in this letter of Philippians, Paul emphasizes the Christian's heavenly citizenship. And in verse chapter 3, verse 20, he uses the same, the same word in a different form. And says, but our citizenship is in heaven, chapter 3, verse 20. There it comes right out, citizenship. Just like citizenship in the United States of America has duties and responsibilities, like voting in the elections, upholding the democratic values, obeying the law, paying taxes, serving on a jury, so there are responsibilities of being a citizen of God's commonwealth and promoting unity among God's peoples, one of them. Jesus Christ gives us a new citizenship. That citizenship has certain ways of acting with each other. It has certain duties, you might say. We're to live in peace with one another as citizens of God's commonwealth. 
We are to serve one another as a citizen in God's commonwealth. We are to give to one another as citizens of God's commonwealth. We are to act in purity toward one another as citizens of God's commonwealth. And it can go on. So there are responsibilities and duties we have as citizens in God's uh, heavenly city or, or uh, commonwealth or society. There are certain duties and responsibilities, and we are to put those into action with each other. And being united is one of them. Because it is the unity of God's commonwealth, that unity has its own character. So uh, we might talk about what it means to be a good citizen in the United States, and that has certain definition to it. Well, to, uh, be, to have unity in God's commonwealth has its own character, its, its, its own way of being defined. It's not, it's not that we are to fill the word with unity, what unity means in other societies, in other contexts, other places that we, we live in this world. We're not to just simply take over what unity means in those contexts and then just fill it into what unity means in God's uh, commonwealth. The apostles not leaving it up to the Philippians to insert the meaning of unity in the colony of Philippi, it was a Roman colony, into the unity of God's city. Paul uses a number of different phrases in our reading from his letter to help us understand what unity is as, a, as heavenly citizens. We need to come to understand what that means, and so Paul spends a lot of time in this letter uh, talking about that. For one thing, he uses the phrase in chapter 2, verse 2, the same mind he uses the other phrase, one mind. And he's not talking about how we're all to think exactly the same things. Rather, Paul is talking about having a harmonious disposition. And he clarifies that with the rest of verse 2, having the same love, being in full accord of one mind, having a harmonious disposition. Our disposition is our character. It involves our whole person. We are to act with our whole person for unity in the church. That means our thoughts our attitudes, our speech, and our behavior. You see, unity in the church as citizens of God's commonwealth is not just something we talk about. It's how we order our whole self, not just part of ourselves, but our whole self. The Apostle Paul is talking about the responsibility we have for unity in God's commonwealth. That's one thing he's talking about. The second thing he's talking about, Paul makes sure the church knows the source of its unity. The source of that unity is our being joined with Christ. Our unity in the church comes from being united with Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. So for us, unity comes from unity. This is expressed in chapter 2, verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, that word participation there is the word koinonia, and it means fellowship or communion. And Paul bases the unity of the church on the encouragement we receive from Christ and participation in the Spirit. Because of that, we can be united. What this means is that the unity of the church is not something that originates in ourselves. And that's a huge difference between how we might think about our nation being united or some other organization being united in this world. That would originate from, with, from itself, from within itself. But our unity in the church does not originate with ourselves. We don't have it in ourselves to create unity in the church. Our sin drives us apart. We want to assert ourselves over others. We push for our own rights. Not all the time. 
It's not like that all the time, at least in most churches. But disunity does arise from us. However, because we are in communion with Christ by the Holy Spirit, there is unity in the church. And the unity of the church comes from the Holy Spirit. Third, the unity of the church is part of the proclamation of the gospel to those outside the church. And Paul relates the unity of the church to the gospel and God's salvation in chapter 1, verses 27 and 28. He says, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side by the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. Now, this is a bit strange, what he says here. If Paul were only talking about standing firm in the gospel, that would make a little more sense. Being witnesses in agreement to what the gospel says proclaims the gospel to those who are against it. So it would be like having, being in agreement with the message. But Paul is saying more than that. The unity of the church is a demonstration or a proof of eternal consequences. And I like how G.B. Caird puts it, the unflinching unity of the church in the face of persecution is to be God's way of proving something to the persecutors, which has to do with man's final destiny of destruction or salvation. The unity of the church against its opponents is a sign that the gospel is God's way to salvation. That makes sense if we understand that the unity of the church is God's doing. The only way the church stays united is if the Spirit of God keeps it united. We cannot keep the church united in the gospel. We can't do it. Consider all the ways that Christians sabotage the unity of the church. They push their agendas in the church, whether that's political, social, or personal. They pummel each other with doctrine. They capitulate to the opponents of the church. They speak ill against each other. They assume the worst about each other. They sin against each other. When a church remains united in the faith of the gospel in spite of the sin and self-centeredness within it and the hard assaults by our opponents, God is holding it together. God favors the church holding fast to the faith of the gospel, and that's the way of salvation. Those who fight against the church are not on the way to God's salvation, but on the way to destruction. The unity of the church is at the core of the gospel. It's, it's not just the side benefit of the gospel. It's at the very heart of what the gospel is, is about. And finally, the unity of the church requires humility. At the beginning of chapter 2, the apostle Paul gives an elaborate reference to the unity of the church. And then in verse 3, he says, Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Christian humility is necessary for unity in the church. In the ancient world, humility was considered a vice, a bad thing, a weakness of character. But for those united in the spirit of Christ, it's a virtue. See, for us in the church, humility is a virtue. Following our lesson this morning, the Apostle Paul gives the example of Christ for the humility of the church. He starts in chapter 2, verse 5, with a hymn, um, H-Y-M-N, um, of, to Christ, uh, about Christ and his humiliation. Jesus Christ acted in humility, in humility when he became the servant of our salvation. He was humble in his disposition. And therefore, if we are joined with him by the Spirit, then we will be humble in disposition. Christian humility is Christian because it's rooted in Christ's humility. 
Christian humility is not asserting ourselves, our rights over others in the church. What Christian humility is, is self-effacement. It's putting oneself in the back, not in the front, so to speak. Or in Jesus' words, it's wanting to serve, not be served. When Christians are humble, as Christ was humble, then there's unity in the church. This is what Paul says in our lesson this morning about the unity of the church. Unity is our duty as citizens of God's commonwealth. It's the source, the source of that unity is the Holy Spirit. The unity of the church shows the gospel, and it requires humility. Now, a text like this from Philippians calls for self-examination, and probably or maybe you've started doing that already as you listen to it. It calls for self-examination, personal self-examination. The question arises for each one of us, do I have a disposition that contributes to the unity of the church? And you can tell I was thinking about that for myself when I wrote the sermon. Remember, our disposition involves our whole person, our thoughts and beliefs, our words, our feelings, our actions. Do my thoughts and feelings promote the unity of the church, or are they divisive? Do my words foster unity in the church, or do they tear it apart? Do I harbor feelings that erode the unity of the church, like grudges and anger? Or do I have feelings that help the church draw together, like empathy and kindness? Do I serve and give to the church, or do I hold myself back? Now, when we consider ourselves like this, we find that we come up short. If any of you don't feel like you come up short, please come and tell me how you did it. <laughs> the proper response is not to say, oh, well, I guess I'm no good at this, or I give up. The proper response is confession. What do we do whenever we come short? Uh, we confess our sin. Help me to be who I am in Christ. Heal me, O Lord. Renew me, renew me by your grace. Also, there is to be self-examination for the whole church, not just personally, but for the whole church. Are we united in Christ? Are we striving side by side for the faith of the gospel? We will find with our self-examination that we are lacking. The answer is partial at best. In part, each of us contributes to the unity of the church, but not fully. There's much that we could do better. Try as we might, we have not been able to make the church united. Now, we confess it in our creeds. We say, and we believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. One as in united. But then our doctrine drives us apart. You know, at one time, it was hoped that the Westminster Confession of Faith would become this rallying confession of all the Reformed churches, that all the Reformed churches would just sort of adopt the Westminster Confession and, and they'd all you know, be uh, united with that confession of faith. But that hasn't happened it never, the confession never became that. Instead, doctrine has been used to divide churches. Even in, among the Reformed churches that share the same tradition, there are uh, divisions between them, and some of them are um, very caustic. So uh, even, even in the Reformed church, you'll find those divisions. There's also the vow that we take in the OPC that we will promote unity in the church. The fifth membership vow gets at it with these words. I promise to seek the church's peace, purity, and growth, and in my relations with others to endeavor to model Christ's humility and self-sacrificing love. But how easily people ignore this vow when they want their own way in the church. The unity of the church fades in and out based on our efforts. 
But as important as our efforts are for the, for the unity of the church, the unity of the church does not depend on us. And there you have the gospel right there. The unity of the church comes from the Holy Spirit. It's right there in what the Apostle Paul says in our lesson. I already mentioned it, but it's in a, in a list of things that he says, and therefore we might miss it. So I'm going to call attention to it. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, any incentive of love, any participation in the Spirit, stop right there. If there is any participation in the Spirit. Now that might sound doubtful, but it's not. The way Paul puts it, it assumes it is true. In Greek, you can use the if uh, that way. It's a subjunctive form of the verb. And you can use the if that way to say, if this is the case, and it is. Um, and that's what Paul's doing there. In other words, he's saying, if there, is, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any incentive of love, any participation in the Spirit, and there is, make my joy complete, and on he goes. We in the church are in communion with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit binds us together. Now, there's no perfect metaphor. I sat and thought for quite a while about how to, what kind of metaphor could be used for this. There's no perfect metaphor for the Holy Spirit uh, binding us together. But I guess the one I came up with is it's like a rope running through all of us pulling us together. Except the Holy Spirit's not a rope, which is really good. He is the living presence of God. Christ has filled us with the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit runs through each of us and through the whole church, holding us together. Now, in the Old Testament, God revealed that the presence of his Spirit dwelt among the people of Israel, in particular at the tabernacle and in the temple. Except for a few of the leaders and the prophets, the Spirit of God um, did not reside in the people themselves. So there were some, like uh, the Spirit of God filled Bezalel, who was a craftsman for the tabernacle. It's in Exodus chapter 31. But it was for a specific task. In general, the people of Israel were not filled with the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God dwelt in their midst but did not fill each one of them. When Jesus came and finished his mission by dying on the cross and being raised from the dead, he filled the church with the Holy Spirit. And it was on the day of Pentecost. And when I say filled the church, I mean the Holy Spirit came to dwell in every Christian and in the church as a whole. The letter to the Romans says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. If we belong to Christ, if we are Christians, we have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells in each of us and it dwells in the whole church together. And that makes the Spirit the unity of the church, you see. The Spirit and the church are joined together, so much so that if we follow what Paul's saying here, we cannot participate in the Spirit unless we participate in the church. Now, because the unity of the church comes from the Holy Spirit, we are driven towards unity, even though we have our sin and divisions. The Holy Spirit creates a disposition in us that seeks for unity with each other. One spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. We're not content with the divisions and rivalries in the church. Are you content with that? We don't have much of that here, at least not at this time. But we always, there's always the, the danger of that. And then you look at all the other churches and our fellow Christians. Are we content with the rivalries and the divisions that are going on in the church? I hope not. The Holy Spirit drives us not to be. 
We want to have the same love for each other. We want to be in full accord with one purpose. And that's because of the unity that we have in communion with the Holy Spirit. This is why we confess the unity of the church in the creeds. And this is why we vow to promote the unity of the church, even though our best efforts are lacking. This is why the Apostle Paul appeals to the church to stand firm side by side in one spirit and one mind. And this is why we want to work hard for Providence OPC to be united. Because the Holy Spirit does unite us in Christ. Let us then, by the power of the Holy Spirit, strive to be united in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Almighty and most merciful God, grant that by the indwelling of your Holy Spirit, we may have the same disposition and be strengthened so that the church be united for your service. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Please stand, let us confess our faith with the creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, through whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead, and the life of the world to come. Amen. Our hymn is 230, Thou Who Wast Rich Beyond All Splendor.
This is the Lord's table where we are met and nourished by the risen Lord, and where we have true fellowship, that same word koinonia, communion, with one another as co-members of his one body. As they were eating, Jesus took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We welcome to this table all who have been baptized, who have publicly professed their faith in Jesus Christ, and are communicant members in good standing of a Christian church. You are to come to this table with a true faith in Jesus Christ, a sorrow for and willingness to turn from sin, and a determination in reliance upon God's grace to lead a godly life in peace with and love toward your brothers and sisters. Christian people, today we have been reminded that Jesus Christ gives us the Holy Spirit who, who unites us together and creates the unity of the church. This day we have confessed our sin, received the assurance of God's forgiveness, we've heard his call to live in love. As you come to the supper, I exhort you to remember the grace that is yours in him, and strengthened by the sacrament, in the fellowship of the Spirit, strive side by side for the gospel faith, and come to this meal with joy, rejoice in Christ's sacrifice on your behalf, be strengthened by his gifts, and find here the grace you need to follow where he leads. Join with me in giving thanks to God for our new life in Christ and our salvation. The Lord be with you. And also with you. Lift up your hearts. Lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right to give you thanks and grace. We do give you thanks, Almighty God. You have created us in your image. You've given us a world full of good things, and we have benefited from those things. And obviously, we are exceptional within your creation. But most of all, you sent your beloved Son, who, though he was equal with you, became a man and lived among us as the servant of your salvation. He was obedient even to die on the cross so that we might pass from death to life. He was put to death for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And so with all of heaven, we praise your great and glorious name, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of the majesty of your glory, Hosanna in the highest. And now we pray that we would consecrate this bread and cup, that you would consecrate this bread and cup, so that our eating of this bread and drinking of this cup may be for us a participation in the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. For we profess our faith, we receive this communion meal with, our, with faith, and the faith the church has expressed from very early. Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We thank you that even as there is one bread and one cup, so the church is one, and together with all your holy people we have been united to Christ. We praise you and glorify you forever, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom all good things come and who has blessed us with the life-giving Spirit. To you is all the honor and glory, along with the Father and the Holy Spirit. And we offer our thanksgiving with one voice and say together, Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ took the bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he took the cup, saying, This cup is the cup of the new covenant, sealed in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do this in remembrance of me.
Jesus said, Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Take and eat this bread and drink this cup. Remember Christ's body and blood given for you, and receive it with faith and thanksgiving. Take and eat and drink. Let us pray. Holy Father, you did gather us around the table of your Son so that we with all your household may partake of this holy food in your kingdom, wherein the fullness of your peace is revealed. Gather people of every nation and tongue to share in the eternal banquet of Jesus Christ our Lord. This we pray in his name. Amen. Final hymn is number 243. Praise the Savior now and ever.
Please be seated, and good morning to you all. Um, I don't have a lot in the way of, uh, of announcements, um, so directing your attention to um, the Life Together insert. Um, we continue our uh, Christian education classes today, uh, Narrative Apologetics, um, and uh, are we doing spellbinding stories, and also spellbinding stories from church history uh, for, the, um, for the older youth of our congregation. Um, as far as other things, everything is at least uh, a week or two away, so um, I won't dwell on it, but uh, I guess in the spirit of um, the, the sermon and the unity of the church, uh, just sort of uh, a brief reminder of some of the uh, ways that we can celebrate that, things that are kind of baked into the way we do things, but um, just, you know, we, ha- we have, don't, don't forget your elders and deacons, we have four deacons, an all-time high, I believe, so if there's anything you need, uh, please be speaking up, um, and uh, if there's anything you know others in the congregation need, uh, please be, uh, be speaking up, and um, just an encouragement that, uh, that in unity and love, um, you know, continue to reach out to each other and, um, and communicate and you know, maybe give somebody a phone call um, or send an email uh, or a card or something. Um, also reminding you of the ways that we can help alleviate uh, suffering in the world around us, the food pantry, and donations to the uh, Arab American Friendship Center are always welcome. Um, that's all I was going to talk about, but if there are other announcements... Yeah, I, I just uh, ask for your prayer this Saturday. The search committee is meeting here at 10 o'clock. So be, prayer, be praying for them as they begin their work. All right. Seeing nothing else from the floor, we will uh, go ahead and dismiss for some time of fellowship and meet back for Christian education shortly.